This is Undark. We're a magazine devoted to exploring the intersection of science and society. And we're this podcast. Hello again. Welcome to Episode 8. I'm David Corcoran. For our cover story, A Mysterious Disease and a treatment that seems to do more harm than good. The disease is called ME-CFS, and if you've never heard of it, that's because you probably know it by its more common name, chronic fatigue syndrome. That name turns out to be bitterly controversial, like everything else about the disease. Joining us to tell us about his Undark cover story is reporter David Tuller. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, David. So, uh, first of all, M-E-C-F-S, what does that stand for and what is it? Well, okay, so the M-E stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is kind of a handful to say and also to think about. It basically means inflammation of the brain and central nervous system along with muscle pain. And that was a name given to a very, basically the same syndrome or a very similar looking syndrome in the late 1950s after an outbreak of Uh, what appeared to be an infectious illness at a London sort of hospital complex. Um, They gave it that name. And then going on 30 years later, when there seemed to be a couple of outbreaks or there were reported outbreaks in the U.S. and the CDC investigated, they decided they were not going to give it a name that implicated any particular thing for it. Uh, They gave it a name which focused on what they saw as the primary symptom, which was fatigue, and they called it chronic fatigue syndrome. So uh, what are the symptoms exactly? Well, it's been very contested because the problem with calling it chronic fatigue syndrome is that it's not fatigue like you or I might go out for a walk a couple of miles and we'll come back and we'll be tired and we'll rest and then we'll feel better. The fatigue that they experience is sort of a kind of often paralyzing exhaustion where they can't even barely move or they feel like, you know, moving one leg in front of the other is like, you know, walking in cement. And so it's a really profound exhaustion that doesn't really correspond to what we think of as fatigue, which sort of sounds like you had a you know a fainting spell in Victorian England or something like that. Uh, so the problem is the name conveys something which is really different from the disease itself. The other problem is that fatigue per se is not the main symptom. The main symptom is that people have a disproportionate relapse or a disproportionate sense of exhaustion after very minimal exertion. So they might walk across the room for a cup of coffee, come back, and they may not be able to move again for several hours because they've just depleted their energy resources. That doesn't happen to regular people. So there's something profound, some sort of pathology that's impeding their ability to create sufficient energy to engage in everyday activities. Your story revolves around the experiences of a couple in the town of Lorraine, Ohio, named Nita and Doug Thatcher. How did you find them? Well, as with everything these days, it's a very active online community of people with this illness. For one thing, you know, that's how they communicate. That's what they do. Many of them or some of them are homebound. Um, And Nita is mostly homebound. I put out feelers through various online networks that, you know, that I'm connected to because of our reporting. Uh, on the illness. And I was looking specifically for people who had, in the U.S., been prescribed exercise or an exercise regimen or a regimen of what we call graded exercise therapy or a gradual increase of your activity levels. The reason I was looking for people who were prescribed exercise is because this is one of the main, quote, treatments that is offered. And it's been the basis of a lot of 
problems, given that the main symptom is actually uh, an exacerbation of your exhaustion and other issues after too much exertion. So prescribing exercise is potentially not only not helpful, but potentially harmful for people with this illness. And this is what happened with Nita Thatcher? Yeah, so Nita was prescribed an exercise regimen in the mid-90s when this started to become more popular. Her primary care doctor said, well, I hear there's some work going on in this area, referred her to a psychiatrist who ruled out depression as a possible cause of her fatigue, and he referred her to a physical therapist. And the physical therapist said, yeah, they've been doing this in the UK, this exercise treatment, and you just gradually increase her exercise because you're deconditioned, because you're not getting enough exercise, and that will make you better. And she did it, and she did it for a couple of months, and then she said it wasn't It was making her feel worse. And he said, no, we just have to fix it, tweak the program. They did, but she still was getting worse. So then she quit. And she never quite got back to her normal levels pre-doing that program. She never got back to those earlier levels of activity. And what's her life like now? Well, she's had ups and downs over the years. So it's the kind of illness that can fluctuate fairly, you know, fairly much. You can be well for a while, then you can get worse. Right now, she's mainly homebound. When I went to see her, we could talk for about 15 minutes at a time, maybe three or four times a day. She can get up and tries to walk a couple of times from her recliner, where she sits most of the time in her bedroom, to the front door and back. Uh, She tries to do that a few times a day. You know, she can read for a period of time. She tries not to stress herself. If she talks, say, for more than 15 or 20 minutes, she starts to forget words. She obviously starts to lose her concentration. So, you know, she has real limitations and, you know, she tries to make the best of it, but she really feels like she's sort of been left behind in terms of research and attention and so on uh, uh, to the illness. So the treatment that she received and a lot of uh, many, many other patients with with this illness received is, is called GET for graded exercise therapy. And it has become, as you write, the standard of care for uh, MECFS. Uh, how did it develop in the first place? Who, who had the idea? Well, it should be said that exercise and the parallel that they that's often recommended with it, a form of cognitive behavior therapy, are good for many illnesses. I mean, exercise is in general a good thing. And so it's intuitive that you might, especially for an illness that's a fatiguing illness, you might think that people should exercise and that will give them more energy back. So there's an intuitive understanding or an intuitive idea that makes some sense. The idea of using these treatments uh, for chronic fatigue syndrome developed in the late 80s and early 90s uh, among a group of psychiatrists and psychologists in the UK. Because what happens is people get sick, then they never seem to quite get better. And the illness that they may have gotten sick from initially, if it was a viral infection, which often seems to be the case, perhaps mononucleosis or perhaps a bad flu, seems to have triggered some autoimmune dysfunction or some immune hyperimmune activity going on, even after the infection seems to have gone. So it's very hard. There's never been a, a, a location of a single cause for the illness, which allows people who think it's more of a psychogenic kind of thing to say, well, you see, there's no permanent cause. So this group of psychiatrists and psychologists thought that people get ill with something. Uh, Then that goes away, but the people think that they're still ill. They still think they have some kind of illness that makes them feel bad if they have activity. The reason they're feeling bad if they get engaged in activity is really because they're deconditioned, but 
they get worried that they have an ongoing illness, so they stop do even more doing activity, and they get more deconditioned, and that disrupts their sleep cycles, and so on and so forth. So they get uh, caught up in what what these psychiatrists and psychologists think of as a vicious cycle of inactivity, unhelpful thoughts about having a medical illness that keep you sick, further deconditioning that causes more symptoms, and then again, fear of engaging in activity, and it's a big cycle that gets worse and worse. So their intervention is, well, get active again. You have to start slow and build up your activity level so that you get reconditioned, essentially. They also think that you should get cognitive behavior therapy, which will help you abandon the false belief that you actually have a physical illness that prevents you from doing any activity. So one or both of these interventions are what they presume will get you back to a healthy state of being. So that was developed in the 90s in the UK, got promulgated in the National Health Service in the UK. These psychiatrists and psychologists were consultants for disability insurance companies. So, of course, it's much better to be able to recommend a short-term course of exercise therapy or cognitive behavior therapy and say the person should get better than it is to think you have to pay them for disability for five years because there's no treatment for them. So there's been a lot of effort in the UK, especially diverted in this direction by the National Health Service, by these uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who had published a lot and attained powerful positions uh, in academia in the UK. And again, they worked with the CDC. So these ideas also made their way over into treatment guidelines uh, in the US as well. And that's how NIDA uh, was prescribed this exercise regimen. So uh, the time came to uh, test this treatment out, and the researchers in Britain did so in the early to mid-2000s. They mounted a, uh, a large clinical trial of the uh, exercise and uh, cognitive treatment. What happened? So this was the largest trial of treatments for the illness ever, and it was a five million pound study, which at this point is six million dollars. They were promoting this idea that exercise and cognitive behavior therapy could get people back to work, would get people either recovered or cured or help make them feeling better. There was small amounts of evidence for this. They did some smaller trials where uh, people reported, yes, they were a bit less fatigued and yes, they had a little more function after some of these kinds of treatments, these so-called rehabilitative treatments as opposed to a pharmacological treatment. Part of the problem was they had no objective criteria for this. They never reported people getting back to work or more people got back to work. They never could report that people engaged in more movements. When they put meters on people's ankles to measure how much they moved, the trials never actually showed that they moved more at the end. It just showed that people subjectively reported that they engaged in more activity. So whether they actually did any more work or did any more movement or got any more exercise, we really don't know because the studies only reported on subjective questionnaires that you answered yourself. So the study was done, was funded in 2003 based on this kind of preliminary data and based on the idea that everybody wanted there to be a quick fix for this thing, as opposed to a long-term medical diagnosis that people were going to be disabled for a long time. So the UK government funded this trial in 2003, and the first results were published in 2011. They tested the cognitive behavior therapy, not regular cognitive behavior therapy, but cognitive behavior specifically as designed for the trial, which was to help patients get rid of their, quote, false illness beliefs or their unhelpful beliefs that they actually had an organic illness that prevented them from doing any activity. The second treatment was this graded exercise therapy, which involved the same principle that you want to increase their activity 
but you're doing it more directly. You're not trying to fix their cognitive uh, beliefs, their cognitive ideas. You're trying to change their behavior by getting them to be more active. The cognitive behavior therapy was getting them to be more active by changing their beliefs and then urging them to do more. The third intervention they did was called adaptive pacing therapy, which was similar to something that patients do called pacing, which is basically what it sounds like. You just every day, you kind of pace yourself within what you think is the energy limits that you have. So you're not trying to push yourself beyond where you can go to get better. You're just trying to adapt to the illness as you see it. The fourth arm was just a baseline arm where they saw a clinician for a few sessions talking about the illness. They reported in the 2011 paper that they got great improvements on this, and then in a 2013 paper that 22% of people recovered using their treatments of cognitive behavior therapy and graded exercise therapy. However, they did so many things in the trial that you cannot do in clinical trials. It is just unbelievable. The study contained an analysis in which you could get worse than one of the indicators and be counted as having met the outcome threshold. In other words, the outcome measure represented worse health than the entry criteria to get into the study. That's just impossible on the face of it. It's shocking, actually, that a study would include that, that it would pass peer review, that it could be pointed out repeatedly for five years and that nobody would think you have to correct it. You can't be disabled and recovered uh, or within normal range, as they call it, on an outcome at the same time. It's like having breast cancer and not having breast cancer simultaneously. It's just impossible. The patients had been making the same complaints for five years since the Lancet study was published. However, because they were patients, they were dismissed as hysterical, anti-psychiatry, not understanding the science. And it was very easy to dismiss them because these were powerful people. I was able to raise a bit the profile of the issue in a kind of respected scientific venue, and it started to get some traction. So there started to be a lot more scientists who may not have been involved, who were willing to be critical of the study. And since then, there's been a big movement against the trial. So, David, you began reporting on the problems with this clinical trial, and uh, you were not alone. Uh, Scientists in the U.S. have begun picking up on this as well. Where do things stand now in terms of our scientific understanding of how to treat this disease? So, before this debunking of the PACE trial, some scientists in the U.S. knew that it was probably bunk, but they weren't really looking into it. They just weren't paying attention to it, but they were doing really groundbreaking research. And that's come out in the last, some of that in the last few years. And also last year, both the NIH and the uh, National Institutes of Health and the Institute of Medicine came out with reports basically saying this is a devastating physiological illness. We need more research you know, it's not psychological, it's not psychogenic, it's not about deconditioning, it's about actual pathological disease process going on here with these people. So there's been a big change in the U.S. especially in that the U.S. was also a little bit in tow to this ideology of cognitive behavior therapy and graded exercise therapy, which is evident that it's in all the treatment guidelines in the U.S. However, On the science side, we have been moving beyond that for the last number of years, and gradually we're getting some indication of what it probably is. So the idea is that it's probably not one illness, it's probably a cluster of illness. There's not one cause, but what's happening is that people are in most cases getting some sort of viral infection, and either because of another parallel exposure to something or some genetic susceptibility, it triggers some sort of hyperimmune activation. It it triggers some sort of problem with the mitochondria in terms of uh, producing energy sufficiently. It's very clear that people may perform well on one day in an exercise test, and then the next day, 
they're severely more depleted than a regular person who has recovered by the next day. So there's something really going on right now. And what they're looking at are various ways of not stopping the cause, because we don't know what the cause is, but intervening in what appear to be the pathological processes, which is the immune hyperactivation. So if there might be a way to calm down the immune system, if there might be a way to calm down the inflammatory processes that seem to be happening parallel to the immune hyperactivation, that might be a way to do it. So one of the things they're looking at is an immunomodulatory drug that's used in rheumatoid arthritis. So that's a possible way that they're doing sort of preliminary uh, clinical trials on on that. And the first thing that they really want to do is to find what they call a biomarker or a diagnostic test that they can use to actually say this person has something and this person doesn't. Because without that, it becomes very difficult to identify who you're studying. You know, with HIV, you get an HIV test. You can tell somebody has HIV or they don't have HIV. It's pretty definitive. Um, We don't have anything like that for this, but the researchers are narrowing in on it, and there's some hope that within a year there may be something like that. That will give a big jumpstart to research if, if and when that happens. So what about Nita Thatcher, the woman at the center of your story? She'd be in her late 60s by now. What's the outlook for somebody like her? It's very difficult. So I know a lot of people in her situation, they've been sick for 20 or 30 years. I mean, I get these emails all the time. You know, I've been sick this way for 30 years and nobody's ever really believed I had a real disease. It's really heartbreaking. And someone like Nita, it's not really clear. You know, the longer you're sick, they think, the less likely it is that you would maybe benefit from treatments, although they don't really know. But people who are long-term sick with this are very likely somewhat different from people who've just been sick for a few years. So someone like Nita, it's very unclear whether there will be any treatment for her, even let's say there's some breakthrough in the next two or three years, or they find some compound. You know, some people will benefit from that and other people won't. So do you feel like the tide has turned here? Is there now a scientific consensus building that uh, these kinds of therapies just don't work? I think in the U.S. there is, but I think that's because just in the last year, there's been a lot of attention to it. I think in the U.K., um, there's really a situation of the emperor has no clothes there. Everybody who's involved in promoting this study, from my perspective, is completely naked, and that includes the authors, the Lancet, and the entire U.K. medical establishment that's promoted it, including the National Health Service and so on. So from my perspective in the UK, no, they haven't paid attention to the international concern about the trial that's been raised in the last year. In the US, I think there has been a shift, partly because they were forced to release some of their data. And the data that they were forced to release this summer by a court in the UK shows that they really don't have any clothes, shows that they have no results that are really something that they can claim are effective. David, amazing story. Many thanks for telling us about it. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. David Tuller is a lecturer in public health and journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. Joining us now is Seth Mnookin, who writes the Tracker column on media and science for Undark. Seth, you are headed for a science journalism meeting in San Antonio, Texas, which is fitting because they're about to have a showdown worthy of the Alamo. Tell us about it. 
indeed, I am about to head out to the annual meeting of the National Association of Science Writers, and I am a board member of that organization. And we are going to be voting on a proposed constitutional amendment that would open up the officer position, in other words, the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer, to people involved in public relations and public information officers. The current constitution stipulates that only journalists can hold those officer positions. Tell us a little bit about the group. National Association of Science Writers. It's been around for a long time. Yes. So it's been around since actually the 1930s. Uh, it's one of the oldest press organizations in the U.S. And it was started by 12 science writers, uh, 12 science journalists. And the history of the organization in some ways kind of mirrors the history of science reporting and science writing in this country. And by that, I mean that if you look back over the years, there were debates about whether the press's role is to sort of advocate for science or to report on it, whether the press should be popularizers of science, what the relationship between the press and scientists should be. But the I guess the 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 modern form that the group has taken, and now we have over twenty three hundred members, is one that includes both PIOs and traditional journalists. PIO standing for public, public information, information officers, officer. right? Yeah. And actually, the don't the public information officers outnumber the traditional journalists in the membership of the group? So it's a little bit tricky to say, and mainly because the definitions and and the way that people define their roles have become much more fluid. So. Previous to the late 90s, PIOs actually could not be full members of the group. Only journalists could. And the reason why I say it's complicated is because in the 90s and for decades before that, if you were a science communicator, it was overwhelmingly likely that you had either a staff job or were an employee of an organization or institution or, or an agency of the federal government. And that is definitely not the case today. You have many, many more people who are self-employed and are self-employed doing different types of work. So someone might be doing freelance journalism and then also be doing some institutional work. And so the rule for the officer has actually not been that they can only be journalists, but that a majority of their work be journalism. And I think one thing that is important to point out is that PIOs can serve on the board. So the board is 15 members. It's an elected board. And the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer are four of those 15 board members. Those The officers don't have any special power or privileges. So PIOs, in terms of having a voice in how the organization is run, they have just as much a right to run for the board and be elected onto the board as, as anyone. And indeed, now, as in the past, there are PIOs who are on the board. And we've been covering this uh, debate in Undark, and I have to say it has attracted more comments than any other thing we've covered. Climate change, Zika virus, none of it holds a candle to this. Why are people so exercised about it? Well, I think what we're seeing here is what you see in any sort of debate, and that's that the small number of people who 
are most emotional and feel the most invested have an enormously outsized influence in how the debate unfolds in public. We, as the board, commissioned an ad hoc group to look at this issue and to go and interview our entire membership. Over 600 members responded to these requests. And so one thing that we know very clearly is that the emotions that are represented in the comments section of Undark, for instance, are not even remotely representative of how people in the organization feel on a whole. The more vitriolic sides of this have been a small number of PIOs, including one or two who were involved in proposing this amendment, who, to my mind, have have said things that are really completely beyond the pale, comparing the fact that they cannot serve as officers to the case system to apartheid and compared this effort to allow them to service officers, uh, compared that to the gay rights movement and said that what journalists are doing is akin to stop and frisk. And that to me just shows a really kind of shocking lack of self-awareness as to what that makes our community sound like, that apparently we view ourselves as being so important that whether or not we can serve in a sort of figurehead position on a volunteer organization is somehow akin to apartheid uh, is something I just I, I find shocking. What do you think will happen if this amendment is adopted and public information officers can be officers of the organization? Well, I think one thing that you'll see is, so in this survey that we took, about a little less than 10% of members said they would leave the organization if the amendment passed. So on the one hand, that's not a huge percentage. On the other hand, there is evidence that a disproportionate number of those people would be fairly high profile journalists. And so when we dug down a little bit more, it seemed pretty likely that that type of departure could have a cascading effect. One of the draws for the conferences are the other people who attend the conference. And it's some of those big name journalists that that are repeatedly cited as, as being big draws. So I think it, it could have a pretty severe effect on membership. In terms of what it could do to science journalism, if it does, if it does end up passing and the NASW does lose that part of its sort of journalistic identity. I think the most likely thing we'll see is that an organization like the AHCJ, the um, Association of Healthcare Journalists, and SEJ, the Society of Environmental Journalists, will see an increase in members as journalists look for other places where they feel comfortable. And it's worth pointing out that we are the only science writing organization that allows PIOs as members. There's one other aspect of this, and that is if the organization were to take a position on a pressing national issue and the president of the organization were essentially a government employee, that might cause the public to uh, look at the issue in a in a different way, perhaps yeah. in a, a skewed way. That's exactly my point, and that's the, the point that I raise in my column, 
there seems to be this sentiment among some PIOs that journalists don't want a PIO as president because journalists think of PIOs as, as being beneath them or being ethically compromised. And that is simply not true. It, the fact of the matter is that we have a responsibility as journalists to make sure that there is not the appearance of any conflict of interest in everything we do. So in this case, it seems that there are some very obvious potential conflicts of interest. And there was an example that came up fairly recently when the SPJ, the Society of Professional Journalists, wrote a letter to the White House, to Josh Ernest, the White House press secretary, complaining about the administration's lack of cooperation and lack of transparency, really historic lack of transparency. And that was a letter that was signed by the president of SPJ and a number of other organizations, including NASW, signed on to that. Now, if you think of a parallel example where instead of SPJ taking the lead, NASW is taking the lead, if it was a situation that involved the FDA or the DOE or NIH, and we had as our president a PIO from one of those agencies, it would be extremely difficult for us to write a letter criticizing a policy that that person was in some ways responsible for implementing. It wouldn't be fair to the PIO and it wouldn't be fair to our members. And so that's the type of issue that I think just makes it abundantly clear why this would be a mistake. It's part of why this mystifies me because it's hard for me to see from the perspective of a PIO why anyone would want to put themselves at risk of being in that type of conflict. And that's why you know, I, that's why to me, this is a situation where there's really not a huge amount of upside and a lot of potential downside. And I don't say that there's not a huge amount of upside to diminish the fact that PIOs, some PIOs feel that the fact that they can't serve as president reflects poorly on them somehow. But I think, frankly, that's that's a, a, a pretty minor issue. So listeners will be able to get updates, I imagine, by looking at the NASW website. But we will also cover it fully in Undark at undark.org. And if you want to hear from the other side, we'll also have an op-ed piece by a public information officer who's been leading the effort to change the NASW policy. Seth, thanks a lot. It's always great to be here. Seth Mnookin writes our tracker column on media and science. He's the author of a number of books about science and journalism, and he's director of the graduate program in science writing at MIT. Hey, it's Halloween, and we have just the thing, listeners. Flesh-eating beetles. You heard me. Reporter Jeff Emptman is host of the KCRW podcast, Here Be Monsters, on which a longer version of this story first appeared. Jeff traveled to a museum in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we'll let him take it from here. An owl died somewhere in the world. And when it died, someone found it, and they sent it to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, to the Beattie Biodiversity Museum. The Beattie Museum is a huge place, and it's full of taxidermy and fossils and pristine white skeletons of all kinds of animals, both big and small. 
But before the beady can add this owl to their collection, they first have to clean it. And I always just assumed that this was done by some poor intern sitting in the back room of the museum, scraping the flesh off of dead things. But that's not really how it works. Chris? Yeah. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. By the time I saw this owl firsthand, it was in a well-ventilated closet in the back of the museum, and it was in a glass terrarium. Its head and its body were separate, and it no longer had feathers or skin or eyes, just flesh and beak and bone, and insects, a lot of insects. So see, is that a larva? Or yeah, That's a larva, one of the larvae. Can yeah. you pick one up? Oh yeah, for sure. You want an adult or a... Sure. So this is, uh, this is an adult, it's just under probably a centimeter, Dermestes maculata. You can see the, the silvery parts, those are tiny little hairs on them. He's trying to pull away from me right now, and he's got those little clubbed antenna. Huh. Can I hold it? Yeah, is that a bad sure. idea? He's just going to crawl all over you. Flesh-eating beetle hair. Okay, um, I'm Christopher Stinson. I'm a curatorial assistant uh, at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum at the University of British Columbia. I'm in charge of mammals, reptiles, and amphibians. So what I was curious about, why, why I contacted you, is because yeah. you, like every other natural history museum that I know of, has a collection of dermistid beetles, right? Yeah, we have uh, three small colonies of Dermestes maculatus, the hide beetle, that we use as sort of museum volunteers, is what they like to call it, to clean uh, skeletons and skulls of the flesh so we can make good uh, specimens out of them. It surprised me when I learned that in 2016, the way museums prepare their specimens is to just throw them in a, a beetle cage. I guess you, you work with that every day, so yeah. it must not be surprising. It is kind of weird. Like, you'd think there'd be some amazing technological advance with lasers or something that you could just, like, laser scan it through and it would eliminate all the meat or some awesome thing like that. But it's, it's the best way. You can just leave it. And it's uh, self-perpetuating as long as you keep feeding it. It's uh, a fairly straightforward process. And uh, the way I like to look at it is that these things have evolved for millions of years. They do a job quite well, so why not let use them to do it uh, rather than try to reinvent the wheel? It's probably nice that you don't have to pay them, too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We pay them in meat. <laughs> is it morbid or is it dark to be fascinated by these things? Um... There's a little bit of a sort of morbid side to it. I don't know about dark. Um, death happens to everything. It's a fact of life. Like, we're not going to get around it. And the fact is that these dead animals that we put through the beetle colony and become specimens and will last for the next 500 years, I hope I'm contributing something to our understanding. I, don't, I try not to look at it as a sort of a morbid thing. Yes, there's death, um, but that happens everywhere. And just because... I'm sort of hands-on on it. I don't, I don't think that it makes me morbid or anything. Do you like these beetles? 
I think they're cute, yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're fun. It's neat to it's neat to have this little ecosystem, a very simple one, albeit, and it's neat to have these little volunteers because uh, I wouldn't want to do it myself. <laughs> Just looking into the beetle colony that we have, there's you can see all stages of the life cycle of them. From the there's eggs in there, tiny larvae which are mere millimeters long, all the way up to like the centimeter and a half full-size larvae, then the adults, there's pupa, there's the patterns that they chew into the substrate in there. And um, I'm not saying that I sit there and meditate to it or anything like that, but it's interesting to me. Even when we go back and go back there for you to take pictures and look at that owl skull that we were looking at before, it'll probably be much more reduced in flesh than it was an hour ago. So. Um, it's a little bit faster than paint drying. <laughs> For Undark, I'm Jeff Entman. And that's all for this episode of Undark, a project of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. We'll be back next month with more news and interviews from the intersection of science and society. Until then, I'm David Corcoran for Undark.